Friends, let's open our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. This is going to be our very last time in this book and in the pastoral epistles as we finish our series this week. We're looking at Titus chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 8, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need this grace to be upon all of us so that we might be a people who devote ourselves to good works. Would you do that in us and in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, friends, we've spent the last nine months in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and we've covered a lot of ground in all that we've said from these letters since September, but there's a sense in which you could sum up some of the major themes that we've talked about in just one verse that we read, and that's Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So here's the major elements that we've talked about since the very beginning. You have right belief. This is a trustworthy statement that we're talking about. Secondly, you have right life. We are to devote ourselves to good works. And third, you have right mission. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So you have right belief, right life, right mission. This is Paul's hope and desire for Titus and for Timothy and also the churches that they represent. And so for that reason, this is precisely how we define discipleship at Columbia Presbyterian Church. You know, you can spend a lot of time talking about being disciple-making disciples, discipling another person, getting into forms of discipleship, but if you don't pause to say what you actually mean by making a disciple, a lot of that is fruitless work, right? And so we've taken texts like these, and we said discipleship is growing another person in worship, walk, and witness. That's, that's in our mission statement, but all we've done is lift worship, walk, and witness out of this same passage and passages like it. If you'll allow me for a moment to give a very memorable line about what the pastoral epistles are all about and what discipleship is all about. If somebody were to walk up to you tomorrow morning and reach out across your cubicle and say, hey man, just give me a handle on the pastoral epistles. How do I understand these? How can I summarize these? How can I remember what they're about? It would be this. Creeds breed deeds that sow them seeds. Creeds breed deeds that sow them seeds. I feel like someone should be beatboxing when I say that. Um, you know, CPC, we're coming out with our second worship album, and it's going to be hip-hop, and that's a line from it. 
No, I'm making all of that up. Um, creeds, you have all these elements. Creeds, right belief, breed deeds, right life that sow seeds, right mission. All three of these things work in concert together in the life of a believer. But today, as we conclude, we want to end where Paul puts the highlight and the climax of that le- this letter, and that is to think well about our creed. What is our doctrine? What is our theology? What is it that we believe? And why is that so important when it comes to deeds and seeds, when it comes to to who we are morally and who we are missionally? Because we've covered a lot of doctrine together, especially in the last two weeks. We've seen how Paul, towards the end of this letter, he subverts the Cretan story with the Christian story, and he reminds us that God has appeared and he has saved us by his grace. And not only that, but Jesus has redeemed for himself a people for his own possession, and he has poured out his Holy Spirit on all of us. If this doctrine, if this this idea of the gospel slips within the church, everything else crumbles. Now realize that um, it's dangerous to use a workout illustration in a room where you have people who do CrossFit. I understand that, but I'm going to take my safety in my own hands, and I want to talk about squats today by way of illustration. Squats, that's a very precise workout regimen, right? You've got to put your your feet just so, shoulder width apart. You've got to square yourself up and hold the bar just right, and then you've got to keep your back straight and do all of these elements if you're going to lift. You do not mess with squats. These are dangerous things, and you must think about your posture. Last thing you want to hear in a gym is, I'm going to throw 300 pounds on this bar, and I'm just going to wing it. I can just hear knees exploding when somebody says that. Um, Anytime you're squatting, it doesn't matter if you've been doing this for a day or decades, you must keep posture in the forefront of your mind. And the same thing is true when we talk about our creed and our theology and our doctrine. This is our theological posture. We never graduate from the gospel and from our theology so that we can get on to the heavy lifting of moralism and mission. This is so foundational. It must be at the forefront of our minds at all times. Because a real danger is if we ever stop rehearsing the gospel in our theology, if we ever stop teaching and preaching and drinking deeply from the gospel message, morals and mission, they become the gospel message for us. Think about it. The medium really becomes the message. If as a church, we begin to kind of skimp on the gospel and theology, we say, look, we're all Presbyterians here, or we're at least sympathetic to Presbyterianism. We get the gospel, we get theology, and we begin to talk loud and often about what we are to be as godly men and women, and we talk loud and often of what we are to do in our mission. That becomes our message. How is anybody going to hear the former over the latter? The medium, us, frantic, do-good Christians, we become the message. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll make you an anxious, frantic, do-gooder just like us. That is not the message of the gospel we want to preach. There's a man named Anthony Bradley who's a professor of ethics at the King's College in New York, and he wrote a really insightful blog post in which he argues that missionalism, that is missionary activity, evangelism, mercy, and justice, that today has become the new legalism. Listen to what Bradley says. A few decades ago, an entire generation of baby boomers walked away from traditional churches to escape the legalistic moralism of being good. 
But what their millennial children received in exchange was shame-driven pressure to be awesome and extraordinary young adults expected to tangibly make a difference in the world immediately. But this cycle of reaction and counter-reaction does not seem to be producing faithful young adults. Instead, many are simply burning out. You see that? Replacing this idea of moralism, this, this generation of, of thinking about moralism and, and simply putting in its place missionalism. Can you imagine telling a raging college-aged millennial Christian that your life verse is Titus 2.4? I just want to love my husband and kids. I want to be kind and submissive. And I want to do all of this in the suburbs. I mean, you would get hit upside the head with a David Platt book before you could even finish that sentence. I mean, it's true that every generation needs to challenge another about what it means to be countercultural, what it means to be radical, but the point is this. Without creeds, deeds and seeds take on a life of their own, and it's not pretty. Moralism and missions, they're not self-sustaining. They can't sustain themselves. Man can't live on missionary zeal alone, but only by the life-giving words of God our Father. So it's no wonder then that in this letter and in the previous two letters, Paul sounds like a broken record when he urges and pleads Titus to remember good doctrine. Chapter 1, verse 9. An elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And what we just read in 3.8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The reason, perhaps, that Paul needs to urge Titus to remember these things is that he's grown weary of doing just that. He's grown weary of insisting on good theology and the gospel. And Paul is saying, there's a ton of things you can fumble in the local church. This is not one of them. The gospel we preach and the theology we believe. It's also no wonder, not only does he repeat, you've got to teach this well, but he also gets deadly serious about people in our midst who are teaching something different. We heard him talk about this back in chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And now in our passage in verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. C.S. Lewis once said, Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And Paul agrees, that's absolutely right. From chapter 1, it seems pretty clear that the false teachers on Crete in Paul's day were Judaizers. They were people who wanted to add to the gospel something else. Whether it was circumcision or the minutia of the Mosaic law, they wanted to say to a believer, you're saved by faith in Christ and his finished work alone plus circumcision. You must be circumcised. You're saved by Christ alone, plus observing these Jewish festivals. You're saved by Christ alone, plus ceremonial cleanliness. This is also foreign to us reading this 2,000 years later, because we're not really in a context with Judaizers. I mean, when's the last time you heard a knockdown, drag-out argument about a genealogy? I'm telling you, man, Azor was the father of Zadok. I mean, we just don't have that in our context, and so we need to ask the question, what's the import for us today? How do we leap the gap and understand what false teachers look like in our midst today? And the parallel between the two is the same. It's legalism. 
but it looks different. We are still in the church today plagued with adding things to the gospel, whether it's deeds or practices or the way we do church or the way we do worship. We can't help ourselves but say, you are saved by Christ alone plus this or plus that. That's our parallel for today. If we've learned all along that good creed breeds good deeds, then we're not surprised to learn that bad creeds, bad theology, that just breeds bad deeds in our midst. Look at verses 9 through 10. The bad fruit of bad doctrine amounts to work that is unprofitable, worthless, and stirs up division. So here's the big irony about legalism. It does not produce good moral fruit. Isn't that surprising? Because the legalist stands on moralism. If you ask the legalist, how is it that that you're saved? Why should God accept you into his family? The legalist would say, because I'm a, a relatively good person. I try to do what's right. I haven't done anything that's heinously wrong. I try to be a good person. So you would think that if there is anybody in the world who does good, it would be the legalist, right? Even if their theology is whack, at least they set about trying to do the right thing and they have good moral fruit. But Paul says, no, no, a thousand times no. That's not how this works. You you take the gospel out of doing good deeds and it's like taking the engine out of a car. It might look good, but it is not going anywhere. Here's the contrast that Paul is setting up. He's said in verse 8, a person who has believed in God, that is, they've, they've been saved by grace through faith, they will devote themselves to good works, and they will be profitable for all people. On the other hand, a person who adds to the gospel, a legalist, their work is bad and unprofitable. As we kind of close right now, I want, to, I want to push back on that a little bit, because I want to understand... Is that really true? Is a born-again believer doing profitable work and a legalist unprofitable and worthless in what they do? How can that really be true? Imagine two women walking into a soup kitchen to volunteer for an hour. Sounds like the start of a really, really bad joke. But one of them is saved by grace through faith, and the other one is a legalist. When they work for an hour at the soup kitchen, how can you compare what's actually going on? Is Paul saying that the born-again believer is doing something that's profitable and the legalist is doing something that's unprofitable? What is the difference between these two women? Well, to answer that question, we must understand what Titus has always taught us, and that is that good deeds are so much more than volunteerism. It's not less than volunteering, but it's so much more than that. And so in Titus, good deeds include our wills, our emotions, our motives, our desire, faith, hope, and love. All of these things are good works. Kindness is a good work. Unity, purity, self-control, these are good works. And so if you peeked into the heart of these two volunteers, you would see a world of difference between them. Look inside the heart of a born-again believer who is active in doing good. She understands that she's been saved by the appearing of God's grace alone, that that is her only hope, and she lives a life in grateful, worshipful response to God. We meet other people's needs because God has met our need. We show kindness to other people because God has shown immeasurable kindness to us. We love others because God has first loved us. Now, this volunteer, this born-again volunteer, she is not perfect. None of us who are born-again believers do anything perfectly. 
She wants other people to notice that she's doing something good. She gets frustrated with the people she's serving and don't think they deserve what she's doing for them. She stumbles in all of these ways. But here's what's so revolutionary about her. Whether it's in the moment of that hour, whether it's later in the day, whether it's a month later, she takes that sin, even the sin of her good deed, and she confesses it and believes in Christ and his gospel. She says, Lord, I am frustrated with the people I'm serving, and I don't think they deserve it. But I understand in the gospel that I don't deserve your grace, and so I confess that to you, and I believe once again that you are good. Lord, I can't help but want other people to like me and to think I'm a good person for doing this good deed. I confess that to you, and I want you alone to satisfy me. That is absolutely revolutionary. Compare that to the legalist volunteer who's totally different. She's working in an entirely different mindset. Her service is her salvation. She is working to win God's favor, other people's favor, or maybe even her own favor. Some of us work so that God will like us, and some of us work so that I'll like me and not be disgusted with myself and the person I'm becoming. The legalist asks, in a very real sense, if a good deed is performed in the woods and there's nobody there to witness it, does it really count? Because there's something about this entire mindset that makes everything we do self-serving. It's in the interest of ourselves, even if it's to help another person to reflect that on ourselves. And Paul says, there is an enormous difference between the two. You fumble what we believe and you have fumbled the entire good work itself. The nature of our task in Titus couldn't be more clear. Paul says, with this belief in place, with good theology in place, with understanding this kind of gospel, be zealous for good works. Be ready for every good work. Devote yourself to good works. In other words, we as Christians who get the gospel work hard at good works. And these works, whether they're attitudes or actions, they're not just ends in themselves, but for, they're for the sake of our neighbor and the sake of other people. We work hard at good works that benefit others because we reflect our Heavenly Father when we do that. God himself is gracious to us and gracious to all people. And when we do these things, we reflect the nature of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we are a people who guard the gospel. I pray that we are a people who never graduate from good theology, but we think and care and read and study deeply of these things, that they will fill us so that we can turn and serve others. Would you do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.